Arise and get on board. Arise, we are about to sail. Arise and get on board. Woe, weep for the bright daylight as the barge is steered away. I am a young man. Let me not be covered against my wishes by a cabin, as if with a blanket, as if with a blanket. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest. Annika. And today we are reading Ningish Zidas' Journey to the Netherworld. This is not a god we've met before, but he did have a temple in Eshnuna, which we're visiting today. The title here is pretty self-explanatory. Ningish Zida is about to take a boat trip to hell. His sister, Amashilama, begs to go with him. But there's also an evil demon, which tends to be more prominent in Akkadian than Sumerian literature. Is this his first time going to the netherworld? Yeah, so in the Mesopotamian religious calendar, there would be at least one annual celebration of this event happening. Probably you would put the statue of a god on a boat with a lot of festival and ceremony and stuff, and then the boat would sail down the river to probably a different shrine or a different temple. Mm -hmm. So there are all kinds of myths about the journeys of these gods from one place to another, whether it's okay. one city to another, or in this case, like to the underworld. Yeah. And also just like the, the story of the marriage of Inanna and Dumuzi is one of those things that would be celebrated on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. But in the story itself, I don't know. But my guess is that it's happening for the first time mm -hmm. because, you know, every myth is the story of the first time it happens. Yeah. And then every year you tell that story again. Yeah, that makes sense. Like Dumuzi and the later Persephone, Ningish Zita has an aspect of dying or going to the underworld. And being reborn, that is returning to the land of the living, there's lots of funerary imagery in this text. And like the sun god, Utu, or Shamash, he rules over the underworld, but travels between both worlds. So has he been the god of the underworld this whole time? It's unclear. Okay. Because, I mean, Eresh Kigal is the goddess of the underworld. There's uh -huh. this guy. There's Utu, slash Shamash, the sun god, mm -hmm. who is a, you know, he's a god of the underworld just because he spends half of his time in the underworld. Also, Nergal, in later periods of history. But Nergal is a kind of, like, god of war and death and disease. Mm -hmm. And he at some point marries Eresh Kigal and becomes a part oh. of the ruling family of the underworld. Almost um, like the Grim Reaper? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, not, not in the sense that he shows up to transport your soul to the underworld, but in the sense of he's the god of death. Yeah. He brings it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Not the shepherd, but the, I don't know. Guy who, who uh, comes to your house and throws a sheep at you. The sheep that tramples you itself. <laughs> <laughs> Stretching out a hand to the barge, to the young man being steered away on the barge, Stretching out a hand to Lord Ningizir being taken away on the barge. Stretching out a hand to Ishtaran of the Bright Visage being taken away on the barge. Stretching out a hand to Allah, Master of the Battlenet, being taken away on the barge. Stretching out a hand to Lugal Shud A being taken away on the barge. Stretching out a hand to Ningish Zida being taken away on the barge. His younger sister was crying in lament to him in the cabin at the boat's bow. His older sister removed the cover from the cabin at the boat's stern. Let me sail away with you. Let me sail away with you, my brother. Let me sail away with you. My brother, let me sail on your barge with you. My brother, let me sail away with you. Let me sail on your splendid barge with you, my brother. Let me sail away with you. So she calls her brother by one of his other names. Damu may be a different god that was later identified with Ningishzida. It might also be a title or an epithet. Ishar Damu will be a king of Ebla around 2300 BCE, and his name might reference this god. She was crying a lament to him. Let me sail away with you, my brother. Let me sail away with you. My young man, Dama, let me sail away with you, my brother. Let me sail away with you. Ishtaran of the Bright Visage, let me sail away with you, brother. Allah, master of the battle net, let me sail away with you. So she repeats the earlier list of gods, Ishtaran, Lugal Shud A, etc., and asks him to let her sail away with him. Speaking of different names, different versions of this text include different names for Ningizira. Some texts call him Lugal Kisuna, and others call him Lugal Kibura. A lot of the time, this name switching is kind of annoying and seemingly unclear for no reason. 
but I think it serves a literary purpose here. The evil demon who is in their midst called out to Ninigisida, Lugal Kisuna, look at your sister. Having looked at his sister, Lugal Kisuna said to her, He sails with me. He sails with me. Why should you sail to the underworld? Lady, the demon sails with me. Why should you sail to the underworld? The thresher sails with me. Why should you sail to the underworld? The man who has bound my hands sails with me. Why should you sail? The man who has tied my arms sails with me. Why should you sail? You know, in the narration, it says the evil demon called out to Ninugizida, and then he calls him Lugal Kisuna. And then in the next line, the narration calls Ninugizida Lugal Kisuna, as if the demon addressing him has changed his identity. Okay. Do you think it just speaks to different aspects of his identity within the story? Like, he is a person and he's a brother, but he's also somebody who has this, like, obligation to this demon. And, Maybe. Like, the different roles that he has to play. Ooh, that'd be interesting. If these other names correspond to other titles that he has, it's notable that one of his titles is Ishtaran, which is the male version of the name Ishtar. Mm-hmm. Who is the goddess of? Love and sex and war. And, okay. like, statecraft. Huh. Uh, she's Inanna, like, but the Akkadian version. Yeah. And she is not an underworld goddess per se, but, you know, like I said, there are many stories where she's associated with the underworld, where she goes down to Erish Kigal, who's her sister, oh. and uh, Erish Kigal detains her, effectively killing her. The deal that they work out to get Inanna back to the world of the gods is that her lover, Dumuzi, has to spend half of the year in hell. Oh, Persephone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. wow. The river of the netherworld produces no water. No water is drunk from it. Why should you sail? The fields of the netherworld produce no grain. No flour is eaten from it. Why should you sail? The sheep of the netherworld produce no wool. No cloth is woven from it. Why should you sail? As for me, even if my mother digs as if for a canal, I shall not be able to drink the water meant for me. The waters of springtime will not be poured out for me, as they are for the tamarisks. I shall not sit in the shade intended for me. The dates I should bear like a date bong will not reveal their beauty for me. I am a field threshed by my demon. You would scream at it. He has put manacles on my hands. You would scream at it. He has put a neck stock on my neck. You would scream at it. How does he know about how, I guess, otherworldly it is? Like, it might have things that resemble our world, mm -hmm. but it's not used in a way that could benefit us. That's a common theme about the Mesopotamian underworld, mm -hmm. is that, you know, there are human-shaped shades there, oh. and they live in kind of a mirror version of our world. Yeah. They have all of the things that we have, except the food doesn't satisfy your hunger, the water doesn't satisfy your thirst. You know, the oh. sheep don't grow wool or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just kind of a, a grim place to be. Yeah. Because, you know. It's, it's a world that can't serve us. Right. It's no, a world exactly. It can't serve the living. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Is it kind of like eternal punishment, like Tantalus, but for everything? There's not a moral aspect to this, is the thing. A, well, A, there's not a heaven where the good people go. Yeah. It's everyone, everyone goes to the underworld and everyone agrees that the underworld kind of sucks. But within the underworld, there is a story, uh, Gilgamesh Enkidu in the Netherworld, where Enkidu goes to the underworld and comes back and tells Gilgamesh about it. And the bulk of that text is Gilgamesh saying, like, what about the man who had one son? He eats dust alone. Like, what about the man who has five sons? He sits on a comfortable chair, you know, in a well-stocked pantry. Like, what about oh. the man who has ten sons? Like, he sits on a throne, and you know, the gods themselves, whatever. Okay. So there's an idea that if you do certain things in your life, your life in the underworld will be easier. Or you have, like, you know, a higher status in the underworld huh. because you had more sons, uh, because you, you know, did all the right things in life. Huh. So it's like a heaven and hell, but all in one place. Well, and especially, it's kind of like a mirror of the human world in that, you know, people are rewarded for doing certain things. Mm -hmm. And just like in the human world, they all have to live side by side. Yeah, interesting. So his sister tries to start bargaining with the demon. She offers the demon several different things, but the text is broken. Ama Shilama said to Ningish Zida, The ill-intentioned demon may accept something. There should be a limit to it for you. My brother, your demon may accept something. There should be a limit to it for you. For him, let me remove from my hips 
my lapis lazuli beads, for there should be a limit to it for you. How they treat you, how they treat you, there should be a limit to it for you. My brother, how they treat you, how haughtily they treat you. I am hungry, but the bread has slipped away from me. There should be a limit to it for you. I am thirsty, but the water has slipped away from me. There should be a limit to it for you. And then the lapis lazuli girdle. Yeah, I kind of wanted to like look that up on Google Images. That sounds somehow spiritual or somehow... There's kind of a long history of girdle-type things involving belts and beads and tying it around your waist mm -hmm. that seems to be associated with women and especially like sex. It's around the, the hips and the, you know, the birth-bearing place. Right. So. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's probably some kind of symbolic aspect there that is not clear in the text. Mm -hmm. Maybe while her brother is going to the place of death, she wanted to give him a gift of life to protect Ooh, that's him. That's good. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. The evil demon who is in their midst, the clever demon, that great demon who is in their midst, called out to the man at the boat's bow and to the man at the boat's stern, "Don't let the mooring stake be pulled out. Don't let the mooring stake be pulled out, so that she may come on board to her brother, that this lady may come on board the barge." When Amma Shilama had gone on board the barge, a cry approached the heavens, a cry approached the earth. That great demon set up an enveloping cry before him on the river. Ur at my cry to the heavens, lock your houses, lock your houses, city, lock your houses. Shrine Ur, lock your houses, city, lock your houses. Against your lord who has left the Gipar, city, lock your houses. So the text is broken here, which is unfortunate because it's clearly the climax of the story. We'll see how it ends, but first... Last time we looked at the Kingdom of Kish, which was a major political power in central Mesopotamia between about 2900 and 2600 BCE. Today, we're going to stay in central Mesopotamia and look at the same time period. We're going to start with Mari, a major city on the middle Euphrates that was built from scratch around 2900 BCE. This was a colossal feat of engineering, but we're not sure who did it. Then we'll look at the lower Diala River. This river flows west from the Iranian highlands and into the Tigris River near modern Baghdad. We're going to look at two cities, which will be important later on, Tutub and Eshnuna. So starting with Mari, we are on the middle Euphrates in northeastern Syria, right across the Iraqi border. Today, we're going to be looking at the City 1 period between about 2900 and 2600 BCE. So in other words, the same time period as the quote-unquote archaic period, or the early dynastic 1 and 2 periods. This is not a natural site for a major city. It's too far south for dry farming. In other words, it doesn't rain enough in the region to farm without irrigation. And it's too far north for easy alluvial irrigation, because there's not enough flat land near the river like there is in the south. In fact, Mari will be halfway between these two major agricultural zones, so it's going to have to rely on interregional trade to support its population. Like earlier Uruk outposts, for example, Habuba Kabira, this is a new city built from scratch at the intersection of two trade routes. Obviously, the Euphrates is one of these routes, but instead of an overland route, the other one is the Habur River, which is the same river system that is home to Tel Brak, or Nagar, which we'll look at later this season. As we'll see, they had to dig over 100 kilometers of canals to make living here worth it, canals both for travel and for irrigation. And as a result, Mari sat at the third millennium version of a highway interchange. In other words, as we'll see, they controlled all water traffic on the middle Euphrates, including downriver from the dry farming regions of the upper Habor River. But unlike Uruk outposts, Mari was founded when water transport was more important than land transport. So it may have been built to expand the boat trade within the Mesopotamian alluvium during the transition from the Jemdet Nasser to the early dynastic. The goal was still the same as the earlier Uruk outposts, though. Whoever built Mari wanted to maintain control over the flow of precious goods, including precious metals and minerals, mostly copper and silver from the north, as well as copper, silver, gold, lapis lazuli, carnelian, and so on from the east, as well as timber and charcoal, neither of which would have been very common in the middle Euphrates. Mari may be named after Mer, who appears to be a local storm god. I've mentioned how the Sumerian name of the land of Akkad was Ki-Uri, corresponding to the Akkadian name Warium, or land of Wari. 
and that appears to be named after a deity named Uri or Wari or Mare. This name doesn't appear to have a Semitic etymology, so the name of the city may be named after a god that had existed in the region before the Semitic language. Like the places we'll be looking at today, this region appears to have mostly spoken Akkadian, which is a Semitic language unrelated to Sumerian. So under the foundation of the city, we see a level of dirt mixed with ash that is 50 centimeters thick. This was apparently to prevent the water table from rising up and eroding the mud brick foundations of the city. This was also a way for them to flatten what was already an incredibly flat area of land. The natural elevation of the land they laid the city on varies by less than 50 centimeters. So the outer wall of Mari forms a perfect circle with a diameter of 1.9 kilometers. This is an impressive geometric feat, as if they had tied a 950 meter rope around a peg and then traced out a circle. The round walls would be the best defense against floods, because water would wear down any corners or edges. So the inner wall is slightly less perfect and more polygonal, because it only has to protect against invaders, not floods. This wall was at least 6 meters thick and 8 to 10 meters tall, and it was buttressed by towers sticking out to 2 meters, and it has a diameter of 1.3 kilometers. So the 300 meter wide ring between the walls was filled with gardens and the quarters of artisans. In his 2014 book, Jean-Claude Margaron wrote, quote, The work of preparing the site probably caused many deaths among the slaves and the servant populations, indicated by the bodies found on the original ground level in tombs constructed of mud brick without any funerary objects, end quote. This is the only cemetery as such in Mari. Everyone else we'll see is buried under the floors of their houses, which had been common in the region since basically forever. So there's one problem facing people who want to dig canals, and that is that the city of Mari is built on higher ground than the river itself, and it's also two kilometers away from the actual river. Also, the groundwater is too salty to drink, so you can't just dig a well. The city would have no access to fresh water and no access to the river trade. So along with the founding of the city, they dug a canal seven to 10 kilometers long to connect the city to the river. Then they dug a much bigger canal. This one is 120 kilometers or 75 miles. To be a shortcut from the Chabur River to the Euphrates, they shortened the journey by up to 40 or 50 kilometers. To construct this canal, they had to dig downwards, at least five meters below the level of the city foundation, in places they had to dig as far as 28 meters down. So they would literally be moving 90-foot mountains of dirt. This canal has a remarkably consistent slope, falling 0.2 meters for every kilometer that it runs. And it's unclear exactly when this bigger canal was built, but in 2013, Margaron wrote, quote, It is difficult not to attribute it to the founders of Mari, because the canal is the only justification for the position of the city. Without it, Mari had no raison d'etre. It is difficult to see any other justification for the building of an irrigation system here in a particularly inhospitable region if engineers had not been motivated by the need for a large-scale enterprise which assured the growth of the city, end quote. So this water traffic would have been carried on wooden boats. Their freight would vary widely between about 6 and 90 tons. Boats going downriver would have the right of way because they're harder to steer and they would have more inertia. Boats going upriver would have two options. You could tack from one shore to the other in short jumps. This is time-consuming and it takes up space, especially if there are other boats speeding downriver. Your other option is to get a bunch of guys with rope and haul it upriver. In text from the 21st century BCE, we can see one person can haul one ton for about 10 kilometers a day. So if you're going downriver from Syria, the new canal with a smooth slope is on your left bank. Otherwise, you're going to want to follow the main river all the way down. If you're going downriver from the Habor, you're going to want to use the shortcut if you don't have to stop at Mari. And if you do have to stop at Mari, there was probably a transshipment where the canal curves nearby the river, so you can move cargo from the canal to the river and vice versa. If you're going upriver, you definitely want to use the canal because the even slope makes it easier to haul boats uphill. And of course, if you're not using the river, you would want to travel overland via donkey caravans. A donkey can carry up to 120 kilograms, or about 265 pounds, and they need at least 30 liters of water a day. So you need to either follow the river or hop between oases. They won't domesticate camels until after the end of the Bronze Age. Also, at the same time as the founding of Mari, we see a massive agricultural irrigation project to feed the city, 
it only would have rained about 140 millimeters a year in this area, which is much too low for dry farming. But one problem with irrigation is that the city is at the top of the valley and the water is at the bottom. And of course, water is heavy and it flows downhill. So one solution is to build a shadouf. This is a bucket at the end of a lever. So it dips down to fill the bucket with water and then it rises back up, emptying the bucket onto higher ground. Another solution is to build a dam that is to dam up spring floods upriver where the river is higher elevation wise and dig canals from that dam to your farmland. So we see an irrigation canal that is over 100 meters wide. So the entire length of a football field, including the end zones, this canal would be capable of handling large floods. It was also wide enough to keep parts of it open while they repaired parts of it. This canal was probably connected to a stone dam 17 kilometers upriver. So if it was one meter deep by 100 meters wide by 17 kilometers long, that would be 450 million gallons of water or 1.6 times the volume of the Empire State Building. This canal opened up a huge amount of new farmland, especially the wide flat plain between the actual river and the shortcut canal. This is the same kind of positive feedback loop that we see before. More labor means you can develop more land to grow more food, to feed more people, and so on. To look at architecture, part of the oldest layer here is a quote-unquote building with stone foundations. This is a big building, over 32 by 25 meters. The foundation was made of stone blocks, over one meter thick, and the biggest room is 12 by 6 meters. It's safe to call this an administrative building, but it's not clear if it belonged to a temple or a palace. The earliest level was incompletely excavated. Under the later temple, Tun in Hersong, we see a two meter tall wall decorated with a very fine niche that is at least three meters thick. This is clearly some kind of monument and maybe an early temple, maybe even a forerunner to the later temple, Tun in Hersong, the Sumerian mother goddess. So metallurgy would be their most important industry. It may have been a major reason the city was founded. We see lots of different types of hearths and fragments of crucibles and bellows nozzles. We also see lots of plumbing installations. It's unclear exactly what they were used for. Margaron says, quote, One puzzling installation, certainly used for some sort of manufacturing, was originally identified wrongly as a type of sit-down lavatory. All we can say is that it must have been used in some process where the elimination of water was important, end quote. We see another installation that is a low platform surrounded by a raised edge. In the middle is a sunken jar to collect liquid. This might have been used for dyeing fabrics. It also might have been used for ritual libations, that is, pouring offerings of oil. We also see altars with sunken jars in the lower diala. We see a wheel shop with the imprint of a solid wooden wheel in bitumen. This is the oldest imprint of a wheel known from Syria, and the impression is clear enough to see how the planks fit together. At the same site, we see bronze tools. It is apparently right next door to another smithing workshop. So I mentioned that Mari is connected to the sources of metals and minerals in the mountains. So for example, we see copper goods from upriver, lapis and carnelian beads, similar to those found in the Royal Cemetery of Ur, a small double chain of gold, similar to those found in the Lower Diala Temple inventories, and some cone snail shells from the Indian Ocean. As far as grave goods, we see pottery in the form of jars and dishes, bronze vessels, daggers, axes and scissors, stone sharpening tools, and to quote Margaron on jewelry, we see, quote, bronze pins, rings of gold, silver, and bronze, silver bracelets, various beads and frit, carnelian, lapis lazuli, and gypsum, end quote. We also see about 60 stone vessels in the temple tuned in Hersong, along with 26 shells, some triton shells or hollowed out to use the spike as a spout. We see eye idols, similar to those at Tal Brak and also at Eshnuna. Some of these are carved in translucent green stone. We also see figurines of humans and models of sheep, donkeys with harnesses, and carts. So, Mari was founded on virgin soil. That is, there was no earlier settlement there. It was connected to three types of canal, one linking it to the nearby Euphrates, between 7 and 10 kilometers, one irrigation canal, as much as 17 kilometers long, and one transportation canal, 120 kilometers long, and 5 to 28 meters deep. This was an unimaginable amount of labor. So this raises the question, who built it? The real answer is that we don't know. We don't have any textual records from this period. Jean-Claude Margaron says the canals preceded the city. It may be that they dug the canals first and the city began as just housing for workers working on the canal. Once they're there, you would have to feed them. And because they're already doing manual labor, it might be worth it to get them to dig a canal to feed themselves. 
So the question of whether the city came before the canal or vice versa is kind of a chicken and egg problem. One candidate for who might have built the city is Terka, a city in northeastern Syria, 65 kilometers upriver from Mari. It's mentioned in the list of geographic names from the Kish tradition that we'll talk about soon. So Terka may at one point have been part of the Kingdom of Kish. Speaking of which, Mari might have also been built by the Kingdom of Kish. We already know they commanded a huge amount of labor via the army. The Euphrates would have flowed straight from Mari to Kish. So Mari may have been Kish's outpost in the far northwest to control river traffic into the kingdom. So moving to the lower Diyala. The Diyala River originates in west-central Iran and flows into the Tigris near modern Baghdad. So we're in the northeastern edge of the Mesopotamian alluvium. We have the first evidence of habitation here in the 7000s BCE in the early Neolithic. It was a good site for dry farming. It had lots of rainwater and the valley floor comprised a flat floodplain and swamps. And it had convenient access to nearby hills, affording them access to herding and extra foraging. It was also convenient to several major overland trade routes, not to mention the Diyala River itself, which connected this region to Syria, northern Mesopotamia, and Iran. The region was sparsely settled during the Ubayid period, but we see villages appearing far from the modern course of the river, generally along what looks like an ancient network of natural streams. Remember, this area was much more humid during the Ubayid, and already during this period we see both Tutub and Eshnuna occupied. The earliest pottery here is similar to the oldest Ubayid pottery. We see baked clay sickles, and the material culture appears to be more similar to the south than it does to the north. So it belongs to the Ubayid culture rather than the Halaf culture, for example. Early irrigation probably started by modifying and extending these natural streams, and because they lived in a wide, flat plain, it was easy to dig canals across that plain. As the climate got drier and these swamp waters receded, they could plant crops in what used to be the swamp and redirect canals towards that new farmland. The more land they irrigated, the more food they could grow, and so on. During the Uruk, we see all the characteristic parts of Uruk culture, including beveled rim bowls and clay nails for wall mosaics. During this period, we see rapid growth, including lots of new sites on virgin soil, especially in the west between the Diala and the Tigris, but also population was extending in every direction until there was a settlement every five kilometers along the river. We also see two new canals dug between the Diala and the Tigris, between six and eight kilometers long, with new settlements on their banks. So looking at the early dynastic, we see these trends continue. Settlements are getting bigger and denser. We see lots of continuity between earlier and later levels. We see more interconnected canals connecting the Tigris to the Diala, including one new canal near Eshnuna. So of course, at the top of the settlement hierarchy are the major cities like Eshnuna and Tutub. These settlements are complex and politically influential and surrounded by fortification walls. But at this point, they're not yet city-states as we know them from Sumer. They're probably just large agricultural towns. They appear to grow their own food in nearby fields, and we don't see that much evidence of major bureaucracies. A canal under 10 kilometers is possible for a town-sized state to organize. Also, during the early dynastic, we start to see temples built on top of each other, which makes it easier to analyze change over time. So we're going to start with the ancient city of Tutub. This is 20 kilometers downriver from Eshnuna. It's also known by its modern site name of Khafaja. We see an inscription from Enme Baragesi here, who is the historical king of Kish that we looked at last time. We also see a similar inscription from an unnamed king of Kish at the nearby site of Tel Agrab, both of which indicate that the lower Diala was part of the kingdom of Kish. So we're going to start with the Sin temple in Tutub. Sin was the Akkadian moon god, corresponding to the Sumerian Nana or Nana Suen, the patron god of Ur. The Sin temple was used continuously from the end of the Uruk period. People may or may not have worshipped Sin as such this early. So in the layers underneath this temple, we see layers of ashes, charcoal, and pottery, including beveled rim bowls, Uruk ware, and clay wall cones, which shows this temple was built sometime after the Uruk period. The bricks in the earliest layer of this temple are of the plano-convex Rimkin type, which is a halfway point between the Uruk and early dynastic brick styles. During this period, we see an archaic numerical tablet in the Oval Temple, also in Tutub. But at the Sin Temple, the number of offerings increases over time. So during the earliest level, we see one offering and one votive object. More on these kinds of votive objects later in this episode. During the second level, we see 14 offerings and 35 votive objects. 
And on the third level, we see 68 offerings and 30 votive objects. So in other words, throughout the Jemdet Nasser period, more and more people are worshipping here. As the building gets bigger, the size of the community worshipping here is also growing. So looking at the fourth level of the Sin Temple, this is at the beginning of the early dynastic, around 2900 BCE. Some objects from this level at the Sin Temple include 181 offerings. In a 2015 article, Reinhard Dittmann lists, quote, amulets, 40 beads, inlays, mace heads, ornaments, including pins, semi-precious stones, frit, carved stone, and copper vessels, end quote, as well as 153 votive objects. We also see model wheels, beds, and chariots, mirrors, cosmetic containers, textile tools, weapons, and pottery. Also, notably, we see spirals of copper wire and slices of silver. These are precious metals. They're valuable because they had to be imported. We see them kept in a temple hoard, which means they may have been stored as a measure of value. The fact that the silver is sliced into pieces might show that people were cutting exact slices to weigh on a balance. So if you're weighing the amount of silver you're paying against a standardized weight, you slice off little pieces of silver and put them on the balance until the two weights are equal. This is called hack silver, and it's a common way to use silver as a currency in pre-modern economies with no coins. This may indicate that silver is already being used as quote-unquote money. We have much better evidence of that starting around 2600 BCE. Skipping forward a bit, we look at Sin Temple 6, when they built a larger and more imposing monumental complex around this temple. The walls are now built from plano-convex bricks, which are characteristic of the early dynastic. So this level is an enlargement of an older plan, but this time at a higher elevation. So now you approach the temple complex through a gateway, via stairs between flanking towers, and the complex is now surrounded by a wall. The 1970 edition of the Cambridge Ancient History writes, quote, There can be little doubt that this formidable building, more than 30 meters in length, marked a change in dynasty, end quote which is a bold statement when we don't know the first thing about kings in this region. But no. So the sanctuary is the central room of a temple. So you have the temple complex, which can include different buildings in a kind of monumental area. Then you have the temple itself, which is the main building. But there are lots of rooms in that building, and the most important room is the sanctuary. Now, in that sanctuary is the image of the god itself, usually a big, fancy statue of the god. There are likely other statues of other gods, also these votive statues of people worshipping the god. And we have remains of altars and tables and other kinds of things that we're not always sure what they did, but we do know there would have been a lot of extremely important stuff in the sanctuary room itself. During this period of the Sun Temple, the ratio of length to width of the sanctuary is 3 to 1, just like the sanctuary at Tel Brak. This is also true at Jemdet Nasser era Unug and the site of Tel Ukair near Kish. So the sanctuary only has one entrance at the far end of the building, away from the courtyard. Probably only the priesthood and rulers were allowed in the sanctuary itself, whereas the public would be confined to the spacious courtyard where they left offerings. We're going to skip forward a bit to Sin Temple, level 8. Here we see the same general layout as before, but bigger. The sanctuary is now 15 meters long, but even so, it could still only hold about 50 people. At the same time, an open-air altar was introduced into the courtyard, and a second altar at one end of the antechamber to the sanctuary. This may have been to accommodate more of the community, even if they couldn't be in the sanctuary itself. We have an archaic cache of cylinder seals surviving from the Jemdet Nasser period, as well as some brocade-style seals, which are characteristic of this time and place. They depict a procession of ibex and a hero with a coxcomb in a style similar to seals found at the royal tombs of Ur and the Kish Cemetery A burials. Around this time, around 2700 BCE, offerings start to become richer and more numerous, which is evidence of increasing interregional trade. This is the same pattern driving urbanization in the north, which we'll look at at the end of the season. We see an archaic-looking schist palette in the shape of a lion-headed bird. This may be the Imdugud, or the Anzu. More on that later. This palette is inscribed with characters of an uncertain meaning. We have evidence of statue production. We see five male statue heads and one headless body that doesn't correspond to any head. They apparently made heads and statues separately, and then would attach a head to a statue when someone dedicated one. We'll talk about that more later in this episode. Here, we see female statues are more common than male statues. During level 9, 
we see 26 female heads and seven headless statues. Like the male statues, these were apparently made separately and attached with bitumen. We also see ritual destruction of statues. Some headless statues also had their feet cut off. And at Tutub, a group of male statues was burnt. These are some of the extremely specific ways they disposed of these statues. Again, we'll talk about why that's important in a bit. So up to about 2700 BCE, there was no such thing as the oval temple that we'll be talking about, just a person's house and the attached household shrine. But over time, the shrine grew around the house. That family kept living there as the temple got bigger and bigger, until that house, which apparently belonged to a priest, was eventually relegated to a corner of the temple complex. The house contained remains of fishermen's nets, and apparently hornets built a nest in its roof beams. So before they built this monumental temple complex around this house, construction workers removed 64,000 cubic meters of soil and replaced it with the equivalent volume of clean sand. The Cambridge Egyptian History says, quote, This fantastically extravagant effort shows to what lengths early dynastic man was prepared to go in order to prepare consecrated ground, unsullied and immaculate, as required by the god. Quote. We see similar rituals in Lagash during the 2100s BCE. The layout of this courtyard was apparently designed for huge crowds, the courtyard was 56 by 38 meters, and at one end we see a single chamber on an elevated platform, and on the muddy ground we see imprints of human and animal feet, probably from sacrificial animals. Also within the perimeter, we see storage rooms, kitchens, and workshops, and a sculpting workshop. Again, they probably made these votive statues on site, but despite all this public access, the sanctuary itself was probably still reserved for the few. Even if the temple complex was the center of the city's economic life, regular people probably only saw the statues of gods during processions. Also notable for what we'll talk about in a bit, we see copper ritual figures on bow-legged stands, cast in lost wax. These male figures are ritually nude, wearing only a belt or a girdle. One carries a pronged object on his head, which may be a stand for holding a bowl. We're going to talk more about these figures in just a bit. So to look at seal art, contests are the most common theme in early dynastic seals. The earliest contest seals in Diala are of a similar style to those at Archaic Ur. They show up at Tutub and appear throughout the Archaic period. Specifically, to quote Reinhard Dittmann in 2017, we see scenes in which, quote, either goats, antelope, and or bovines are attacked by one or several lions. Often a man, understood as hero and a bull man, are involved, end quote. These probably symbolize elite status and or human domination over chaotic nature. In other words, they probably serve as a symbol of order, so a strong hero protecting livestock from lions is an analogy for elites protecting the wealth of society from war and natural disaster. Contest seals are definitely associated with rank or elite status. Early on, they're less common, probably reserved for the powerful few, but they become more common later on, maybe because of changing meaning or maybe because of additional levels of hierarchy. A growing bureaucracy will have lots of different officials. Later on, we see seals depicting banquets, which are more common in Sumer. These probably represent dinner parties between elites, accompanied by servants, musicians, and singers. This would be a way for the host of the party to show off their wealth, status, and or connections. So moving to Eshnuna, also known by its site name of Tel Asmar, here we see five meters of Uruk deposits, as well as two Jemdet Nasser era tablets, alongside pottery from the early dynastic. So we're going to start with the Abu Temple. This was founded around 2900 BCE. It's the oldest temple in Eshnuna, and it's the first phase after the Jemdet Nasser to be built with plano convex bricks. So it started off as a small residential shrine with no impressive hordes of treasure like we see at Tutub. But as time went on, we see more and more side rooms. The dimensions of the temple changed, but the basic layout stayed the same. By around 2800 BCE, we see lots more offerings and substitutes like at Tutub. During this period, we see 660 goblets that are intentionally broken and laid out neatly in one room in rows parallel to the walls. These goblets were probably involved in ritual libations at the altars. We see similar types of goblets used in the Jemdat Nasser period, which probably speaks to a long-standing ritual of libation, or ceremonial pouring of oil. We also see cylinder seals and oppressions in the brocade style, which is characteristic of the Archaic period here in the Lower Diala. Let's look now at votive sculptures. So this is a sculpture that depicts a particular person worshipping that is then left in the temple. 
so that that statue can permanently pray to the god of that temple on behalf of the person that that statue represents. So here we see a similar concept to the I Idols Tell Brock that we looked at back in episode 17. With a few exceptions, these statues only appear in temples, and they're most common during the early dynastic. They apparently stood near the entrance to the sanctuary. A minority of these statues have inscriptions with the word for statue in cuneiform. The Sumerian word is Alan, and the Akkadian word is Salmu. So in 2014, Gene Evans wrote, quote, Mesopotamian temples, in general, were not places of communal worship. The sanctuary itself was accessible probably only to a limited few who catered to the special needs of the god, end quote. So the sanctuary is not a very big room, and obviously in a city of tens of thousands of people, only a tiny minority of people would be able to be in that room at any given time, and most likely only the priests at the temple, you know, the people who worked for the temple, would be allowed into that room. So this might be why people left their votive statues there instead. Evans continues, quote, The act of dedication permitted entry to the statue. That is, dedication allowed the statue to do that which the donor could not do. So the statue would continue to participate in rituals, and it appears that once you dedicated your statue to the temple, the statue belonged to the temple, and they would be in charge of what happened to the statue from now on. Eventually, as we see, the temple will dispose of the statue and bury it in a ritually symbolic way. And the fact that many of these statues are found buried together probably indicates that when a certain amount of time had passed, or maybe when they renovate the temple or something like that, they take all of the statues and bury them all together, rather than, for example, giving them back to the family of the person who dedicated it or whatever. From later texts at Lagash, around 2400 BCE, which we'll get to in about five episodes or so, the queen of Lagash would leave offerings to votive statues of former kings and queens, most commonly offerings of dates or oil. So Queen Sasa made offerings to her own statue while she was alive. This is the only known case of that happening up to that point. In this case, these statues were apparently in the courtyard, so a more public place than in the temple sanctuary. So there may have been an opportunity for other people to make offerings to these statues of the kings, which would have been useful for other people, you know, visiting dignitaries and so on to show their respect to the dynasty by potentially making offerings to these statues of the king. So we're going to look at a particular horde of these votive sculptures from Eshnuna, and this is the Tel Asmar horde. Of course, Tel Asmar is the site name of ancient Eshnuna. This is a group of 12 sculptures that date from around 2900 to 2500 BCE. They were found buried together under the Abu Temple. They were discovered in 1934 and photographed together, but they're all in separate museums, and it's unlikely that these 12 pieces will ever be reunited. So on the base of one male statue, we see a relief of a bird grabbing some kind of four-legged animal. The original excavator, whose name is Henri Frankfurt, identified this as Imdugud. So Imdugud is another name for Anzu, a massive mythical eagle with a lion head. The Imdugud shows up in Seals from Ur around this time, which we'll look at when we get to the royal tombs. And the Imdugud is also depicted picking up quadrupeds. And if this is indeed the Imdugud, or the Anzu, then that would prove that this mythical animal, which shows up in mythology starting in the 21st century BCE, existed in Mesopotamian mythology as early as the Archaic period. So Henri Frankfurt also said that this largest male figure must have represented Abu, the god, and that the lion-headed Imdugud is his symbolic form. So essentially that this statue is a statue of a god, and that the picture of the Imdugud is his kind of symbolic form. But both the statue and the image had their heads damaged. So the man's nose was broken off before the horde was buried, Apparently, this was a fairly common way to deface a statue, literally. And we also can't be sure the beast has a lion head because its head has been defaced. So we're not sure that it's an Imdugud. It might just be a really big bird. So this male figure is wearing a belt over his clothes, which is similar to the nude hero wearing a belt that we'll look at in a bit. This may be a tradition of heroic representation that lasted throughout the early dynastic. So some of these statues are holding vessels, including this largest male figure. This imagery of holding a vessel and pouring out liquid from it is common in two-dimensional art, like seals, but not with three-dimensional statues. Specifically, the vessel they're holding is a solid-footed goblet. This is the same type of pottery deposited by the hundreds in an earlier level at this temple, which we just looked at. Around the same time, we see these hundreds of goblets 
we see facilities in the temple built to drain liquid. So likely people poured out offerings from these goblets onto the altar and this liquid would drain into these new drains they built. Also, one of the figures from the Horde is itself a support for a kind of libation vessel. It's carved from semi-translucent, amber-hued alabaster in a more naturalistic style than the others. It depicts a kneeling figure who is nude except for a belt around his waist, which I just mentioned, and he's wearing a hollowed-out headdress in the shape of a small vessel. So in 2014, Gene Evans wrote, quote, Most importantly, the kneeling figure is not a human figure. Rather, it is a semi-divine, mythological, belted hero, end quote. He's sculpted on every side, not just the front, because the underside is visible when you pour liquid from this object. So this was apparently meant to be used either as a drinking cup or for pouring oil. Of course, pouring oil is the central act of libation. It's a very common way to make offerings. So these kneeling figures eventually go out of style. From now on, they're depicted in a default style of standing and facing forward. And going forward, they'll only be sculpted in the front, so they're only meant to be viewed from one direction and not physically handled or moved. And now, instead of pouring oil, their hands are clasped in prayer. So over time, we see a trend where actual lay people get further separated from the god that they're worshiping. So it starts with a participatory ritual where there's an object built to pour oil that they presumably themselves use to offer oil. Then that's replaced with a representation of that participation where they have a statue of themselves, but the statue is depicted pouring oil. And then that is replaced by a representation of non-participation where the person's still absent and they're replaced by a statue. And even the statue is not doing anything, just standing there with its hands clasped in prayer. So over time, we can see a kind of trend where Fewer and fewer people have access to the sanctuary of the temple, and therefore fewer people have access to the kind of central control over the main engine of ideology, which is the god of the main temple. So the Tel Asmar Horde is also important to the history of Mesopotamian chronology. During the first excavations in the 30s, the appearance in the Diala region of this style of sculpture was considered so important that any levels with this type of sculpture were labeled early dynastic two, even if, for example, the pottery still belonged to the earlier early dynastic one style. So in general, divisions between archaeological periods should be based on things like pottery for a couple reasons. Pottery shows up everywhere, the style changes over time, and it's discarded as soon as it breaks. So if you drop a pot, no one has any problem with gathering up the pieces, immediately throwing it away, and either buying a new pot or making a new pot by yourself. And because people are constantly breaking them and constantly throwing them away, and because they don't degrade over time, like organic materials, it's possible to tell which layers are earlier or later than others based on pottery. You know, this is essentially the bread and butter of archaeological chronology. And likewise, there are some problems with dating based on sculptures, especially sculptures in a temple. So these kinds of sculptures are not produced very often because they don't break often. Even if they are handled, they're not handled on a daily basis. Unlike pottery, they're not heating up and cooling down on a daily basis. They're often retained for a very long period of time and then disposed of in particular ways. So unlike pottery, they're not discarded as soon as they outlive their purpose. And they're also produced by a small number of skilled artists who learn from each other. So the style can remain static over long periods, especially when the style is religiously significant. Again, these are in a temple, so they're not just regular daily objects. They're extremely important holy objects. This is a problem because the early dynastic 1, 2, and 3 chronology, based on these excavations in the 1930s, became the basis for all subsequent scholarship on this period in southern Mesopotamia. So people talking about Kish or Ur or Shurupak or Unug or whatever still use this early dynastic 1, 2, and 3 framework, even though there's not really such thing as an early dynastic 2 period. But once there was an established ED2 in the Diala, then a bunch of similar things elsewhere were also assigned to the ED2, including Farah-style seals found at Shurupak, among other places. But even though these Farah-style seals existed alongside what is otherwise ED1 material culture, they were assigned to the ED2 because they appear around the same time as these quote-unquote ED2 sculptures in the Diala. Likewise, ED1 architecture at Tutub was reassigned to the ED2 because of the sculpture. So this is one reason why I called this entire early dynastic 1 and 2 period archaic, because nothing significant changes in the 2700s, where the line between ED1 and 2 is. But a lot of stuff does start to change around 2600, 
the line between ED2 and ED3. Some of those changes include writing advancements in the first literature that we'll see at Shurupak next episode. We see more wealthy tombs and elaborate burials at both Kish and Ur. And we also see a wave of urbanization in the north, including a refounding of Mari. So not the one we looked at this episode, but a second founding in the 2500s BCE. So this is the last episode on the Archaic Period. Next up, we're going to start to look at the Near East after 2600. It'll be a while before we get back to Mari in the north. The next four episodes are going to cover the Farah Period, roughly between about 2600 and 2450 BCE. So we won't be back in the Diala until the Sargonic Period. Luckily, we have lots of text from then, from both Eshnuna and Tutub, but I couldn't find enough to say about the so-called Early Dynastic Three to fill an episode, except for this one thing. So we're going to be skipping forward in time. The grave we're looking at was dug around 2200 BC, but we're going to be looking at a pendant inside that was dated to the 2400s. So that is the Early Dynastic Three or the Pre-Sargonic Period. So the Northern Palace was built at the end of the Early Dynastic in Eshnuna, and it was apparently a textile workshop, like in Lagash, which we'll see. The royal women's household apparently administered craft production, and this kind of textile production was institutionalized on an industrial scale. And we've been talking about that since the Uruk period. We start to have really good records on it, starting at Lagash, around 2400 BCE. One grave just outside this northern palace is a young woman buried with lots of beads under her head. So they might have been from jewelry she was wearing, not jewelry placed in her grave as grave goods, as well as a shell bird amulet and the pendant we'll be talking about. Her death might have been accidental. In a 1991 article, Carol Meyer and Associates wrote, quote, Mortality in such workshops is known to have been high, though the economic tablets record only the fact of death and not the cause, end quote. So she might have been buried hastily. I mentioned a shell amulet, which either depicts a bird or a claw. It's a standard, highly stylized form of amulet. We see similar stone amulets from the Lower Diala and Nippur. Like the pendant we're to look at, it was probably an earlier piece placed in a later grave. So finally getting to this pendant, it was carbon dated to the 2400s BCE. But since this article is from 1991, I'm pretty sure this date is uncalibrated. So the actual date is probably a little bit earlier. So we could probably say this object dates from around 2500 BCE. It's cigar shaped, about two by two by one half centimeters. It's the only piece of copal identified in a large study of early dynastic stone objects. So this cigar shaped pendant was previously believed to be amber, but analysis showed it to be copal, which is resin from the East African copal tree. It has aromatic qualities and it can be burned as incense. Based on where this tree grows, we know it would have had to be imported from the Zanzibar, Madagascar, Mozambique area of Southeastern Africa which is 5,500 kilometers away from Mesopotamia by sea, or about 3,500 miles, so much farther south than the source of Arabian spices from later periods of history. This is the earliest evidence in history known for contact between Mesopotamia and this part of Africa. So East African copal burns with a lot of sparks and little nitrogenous flames. These come from plant and animal material trapped in the resin. We know that copal was used as jewelry in East Africa, so this Eshnun pendant is unique as jewelry that could also be burned as incense. Cuneiform texts mention stones with magical powers, and even though the names of these stones can't always be translated, we know that certain stones had certain magical and protective purposes. So Meyer and colleagues write, quote, A lone piece of copal does not suggest direct contact with East Africa, so much as it indicates a trader-to-trader or hand-to-hand trickling trade up to the south coast of Arabia, and thence to the Persian Gulf, up the Tigris and Diyala rivers, and so to rest for millennia, end quote. So we're going to finish up by looking at this god, Ningish Zida, he was probably the god worshipped at this Abu temple during the early dynastic period. Ningish Zida is the son of Ninazu, the patron god of Eshnuna. Later on, we'll see him identified with other gods like Dumuzi and Nanurta, and later on, the Semitic Abu. So Ningish Zida is a fertility god. Like Dumuzi, he participates in the hierogamy, or the sacred marriage ritual. This motif appears on a plaque inside the temple and a seal elsewhere at Eshnuna. So we have lots and lots of temple hymns related to this hierogamy ritual. In the narrative, Inanna and Dumuzi consummate their marriage. 
This probably corresponded to a real-life ritual involving temple or political elites. The most common assumption is that the king, embodying Dumuzi, would have sex with a priestess, embodying Inanna. But the actual ritual might be more symbolic than literal intercourse. More on that sometime in the future. To quote the original excavator, Henri Frankfurt, Ningish Zita, quote, personified the generative force of nature and was therefore manifest in the fertility of the soil and of the flocks. He lived in the netherworld and often assumed the shape of a serpent, and his canubium with the goddess was an essential part of the annual ritual, end quote. So we see one plaque that is broken in half, and its two halves are found in different buildings. On the left, a man and a woman sit across from each other, probably drinking from cups, and on the right, we see that same couple in a bed, while a third person, maybe a priest, watches. Another plaque in the same shrine depicts a couple churning butter. It's not clear that this represents the divine couple, but the poems about Inanna and Dumuzi do have lots of butter-churning imagery. Obviously, the ritual is meant to ensure agricultural productivity, including cows producing lots of milk, and if you don't process milk somehow, it'll go bad. So calving season in the spring is accompanied by lots of butter churning. And of course, the act of butter churning is visually suggestive in multiple ways. So snakes are a common motif in art from the Diala region. In the early dynastic near the Abu Temple, we see a seal impression with a serpent creature. A 2010 article by Licia Romano calls it a hydra. During the Akkadian period, we see a seal with two gods attacking the same creature. And a second Akkadian period seal shows two people worshiping the enthroned snake god. An alabaster sculpture group that is connected with the latter seal dates from the Sargonic period, but incorporates early dynastic elements. On the front, we see a serpent with a human head in the center. On the other side of him are people with their hands joined in prayer. On the back is a hydra with a snake between its legs, being worshipped by a standing woman and a kneeling man touching his chin. Later, astronomical texts depict hydra next to Ningish Zita. This is the same constellation and the same mythical creature as the Greek hydra, with snakes coming out of its shoulders. And in the much later on Anum list, which is a list of gods from 1000 BCE, Ningish Zita belongs to a group of snake-themed underworld deities. So, speaking of Ningish Zita, previously, the god Ningish Zita was set to travel to the underworld. This is accompanied with lots of funerary imagery. Of course, this is a symbolic death. His sister begs to go with him, but Ningish Zita, apparently under an evil demon's influence, refuses. But then she trades the demon, her lapis lazuli girdle, and the demon appears to trick her. That is, he punishes her by appearing to give her what she wants. There's an unfortunate gap in the text, and when we return, Ningish Zita is talking to his sister. You shall not draw near to this house, to the place of Ereshkigal. My mother has decided so, out of her love. Ereshkigal is the head goddess of the underworld, so essentially Ningizida is saying that his sister won't go to hell with him, and he now turns to the demon. As for you, you may be a great demon, your hand against the netherworld's office of throne-bearer. So for the rest of the story, it's not actually clear who's talking, because of the last line in the poem, I'm assuming it's the goddess Ereshkigal. This may be totally wrong, but there's no way to be sure. My king will no longer shed tears in his eyes. The drum will drown his joy in tears. Come, may the fowler utter a lament for you in his well-stocked house, Lord. May he utter a lament for you, how he has been humiliated. May the young fisherman utter a lament for you in his well-stocked house, Lord. May he utter a lament for you, how he has been humiliated. May the mother of the dead Gurug priest utter a lament for you in her empty guipar, on whom the house of the palace looked with envy. Utter a lament for you, Lord. May she utter a lament for you. How he has been humiliated. May the mother high priestess utter a lament for you, now dead, who used to be in your gipar, Lord. May she utter a lament for you. How he has been humiliated. My king, bathe with water your head that is rolled in the dust. Put sandals on your feet, defiled from the defiled place. Not drawing near to this house, may your throne beckon to you. Sit down. May your bed call you to lie down. The king bathed with water his head that had rolled in the dust. 
He put sandals on his feet, defiled from the defiled place. He ate food in his mouth. He drank choice wine. Great Holy One, Eresh Kigal, praising you is sweet.